So I screwed up this week because I realized <clears throat> as we were starting our uh, service, I had forgot to ask Ed to read the passage. So um, having to read that chapter, that's how you earn your money. So yeah, um, thanks so much, man. It, it was important to read that because there is a lot going on here, and there's a lot of context, and we're not going to talk about all of it, but it's a good idea to get the whole picture uh, of what is happening. So as we talk about uh, Saul specifically and uh, God's relationship with Saul, it kind of makes sense to as we reference some of these things going on with the Philistines and that sort of thing. But before we get there, um, I kind of wanted to let you know uh, things happening in my own life. Uh, that is, our family is uh, getting close to celebrating a pretty big milestone uh, our youngest daughter, Elsie, in a couple months turns two, and the reason that's a big deal is that means we are finally out of the baby stage, and I cannot wait for that, and um, it, it's, it's maybe not for the reasons uh, you think. It, it's not for the stuff in, in terms of, you know, holding babies and changing diapers and that sort of thing. I'm really, you know, excited to be done with that and holding babies. I like holding my own babies. I don't like holding other people's babies. Um, all the time I have people, like, offering their kids to me, and I'm like, nah, I have a phobia of dropping babies. And so if I drop my own, I only have myself to blame, and I'm the one that has to deal with the consequences. If, if I drop your kids, I'm afraid, you know, I'm going to feel guilty for the rest of my life. So, like, don't offer me your kids. Uh, but uh, I'm excited because what I haven't really liked who I have to be in the baby stage, or, or at least that the way I relate to my kids seems to be, for me, at least way too one-dimensional. You see, when you have little kids, and especially once they start moving and start walking and start getting into things, you all of a sudden, your main job is to be the lawgiver. Like, it is all about telling your kids what they cannot do. And it feels like your entire relationship with your child, actually, just like when you ask your wife, you know, how did the day go? Or she comes back, and I've been watching the kids, and she's like, so how was it? My entire relationship and how I feel about my children that day has everything to do with how well they've done obeying what I tell them to do and what not to do. That's what the entire baby stage has felt like. That it's just simply saying, no, don't do that. No, don't go there. No, don't touch that. No, get away from the stairs. No, leave the dog alone. Don't kiss him on the lips. All those sorts of things, right? And it's just constantly yelling no and getting more and more upset as they don't listen. And then when they hurt themselves after telling them not to do that for the millionth time, just getting even more upset with them because they shouldn't be hurt right now because I told you not to do that. Like, that feels like the entire way that, I mean, that's not the only way I've related to my children, but it feels like way too much of the way I have to relate to my children, and I don't like it. And I have to imagine that if they knew better and you could ask them and they could tell you, they would say, well, I don't really like that either. I don't like that it feels like. I'm always worried about whether or not I'm going to do exactly what my parents want me to do. And if I screw it up somehow... Even while trying to do the right thing, I'm going to get in trouble. Because even with, with babies, you can't ask them about what their intent was. You can't say, why did you do that? What, you were th what were you thinking? They simply either do the right thing or they do the wrong thing. 
I was thinking about that. Hannah and I have been talking a lot about what it's like now that we're kind of finally, uh, we've had five years of of kids in diapers and and, and toddlers running around and just kind of at our wits end of trying to keep them alive and and what it's going to be like to finally have like kids that we can like reason with kind of similar. I mean, I'm not like jumping for joy because I know the terrible twos are right around the corner and then there's the three-nager thing and then they move out of the house and then you're finally done. And so... But as I've, as I've been thinking about this, and as finally getting out of the stage and, and, and getting to relate to all of my children on a different level, a deeper level, hopefully, I realized that we still do, though, carry this fear. This fear uh, throughout our life, this, this fear of what if I, what if even though I may be trying to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing, and I get in trouble for it? Does God see me that way? Do, do I relate to God? And, and, and the thing is, that it, it dawned on me as I was thinking about all this in, in this chapter in 1 Samuel, because it feels like that with Saul, doesn't it? Saul's in a really tough spot. What we read here, what Ed just read for us is, is that Saul with 3,000 men, they attack an outpost of the Philistines. And they think it's a pretty great thing because they win this battle over the Philistines at this outpost and they're celebrating everything like that. And then all of a sudden the Philistines show up with 30,000 chariots. Just a little bit of a mismatch. Greatly outnumbered. Saul is in a tough spot. And so in, in trying to figure out what to do and worried about what's going on around him, it seems like Saul is trying to do the right thing. He waits on Samuel to come to offer this sacrifice on behalf of God. Samuel doesn't show up at the time he was supposed to. And so Saul, with really no other recourse, goes ahead and offers a sacrifice. But because he does that, Samuel comes along and says, Saul, because you've done this and you did not wait on me, your throne is not going to be passed down to your children. Notice Samuel doesn't say, Saul, you're out. That comes later. But he says, your, your throne is not going to continue on to your children. And, and, and you know, really, truthfully, at, at a first like surface level reading, that seems like a pretty severe punishment, doesn't it? I told you not to do this. You didn't obey. If you obey, there's blessing. If you disobey, there's punishment. I mean, I can think of people who have done a whole lot worse than Saul in Scripture, and they don't seem to be dealt with by God as harshly. I mean, Moses killed a guy, and then God called him and still used him. We'll see with David later on as we go through second, when you go through 2 Samuel, David does what I would say is a whole lot worse than trying to offer a sacrifice for God's blessing. And yet, God refers to David over and over again as a man after his own heart. It leaves us questioning, does God just have it out for Saul? Is Saul... The one kid that God loses his temper with the quickest. I mean, we all know we have that kid, right? If you have multiple children, you know which one you have a shorter fuse with than the other one. We can all point to it. There is that one. The funny thing is, is I think we all think we were that one, though, right? When we think about growing up with our parents, it was like, oh, no, I, I was the one that got mad at the most, the quickest, the fastest. Everybody else had a whole lot more grace than me. I can tell you, I've realized now that's not true because I know which one of my kids I have the shortest fuse with. Is that Saul? Is God arbitrary like this? 
And if God is arbitrary to where he just chooses favorites, he plays favorites for whatever reason, is it possible that God could do that with us? That we could live our lives trying to do the right thing, trying to obey him in every way that we think is best to our limits and still somehow get it wrong and God punish us more severely than the people around us for it. I mean, it's kind of a scary thought. And yet, to say it out loud, I, I, I don't think that like, I mean, I say it, I, I, I would imagine most of us would be like, no, I, I don't think God's that way. And, but I think in our minds, we wonder sometimes, don't we? We read a passage like this and we're like, is that what's going on here? The good news is, it's not what's going on here. And as we look at it, we're going to see some things that are going on in Saul's life that may not be apparent right on the surface. And it's important for us to know, to know that God is not arbitrary like we might fear he is. But it's also important for us to know because what we see happening in Saul's life is a pattern that gets played over and over again in his life. And it's a pattern that I actually think gets played over and over again a lot of times in our lives as well. As we get into that, we need to remember what Saul was appointed to do, what Saul had been anointed to do, what he had been called to do by God back in 1 Samuel chapter 9. There, as he was about to be called, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago. It said, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel that tomorrow this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall ser- save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. That's a really weird way to say it. He it, it is who. Saul had two jobs. His first job was to protect the people from the Philistines. He was actually going to save Israel from the Philistines. His second job was to restrain them. It wasn't to rule over them as most kings did. His his job was actually to push people, point people, point Israel back to God, to keep them in right relationship with God. And when he saw them wandering off after other gods, like other countries, he was to bring them back. And Saul was actually supposed to do this, not just simply by himself. He was supposed to do it with the help of God's chosen prophet, Samuel at that time. That Saul was supposed to work in conjunction with Samuel to do God's will, not his own. He was supposed to operate unlike any other king in the world. He was supposed to protect, and he was supposed to restrain. And he needed to be obedient to God to this end. The only problem is that Saul misunderstood the point of obedience. He misunderstood what obedience was supposed to lead to. He saw obedience as the end goal. That simply to be obedient meant that he would be blessed. And if he wasn't obedient, then he would be cursed. And this subtle yet fundamental misunderstanding leads Saul to a pattern of destruction in his life. Let's go back to chapter 13. There in verses 6 and 8. It says, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, 
And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Like I said, Saul is in a tough spot. Not only is Saul up against crazy numbers, but everybody's running from around him. People are hiding. They're hiding in wells. They're hiding in cisterns. They're, they're, they're hiding behind rocks and in caves. They're, they're running home to their mothers. All of these things are going around Saul. He sees the army scattering. His resources are dwindling. And so all Saul can see is what's happening right in front of him. And what we find is that Saul is trapped by the tyranny of the urgent in his life. There is an army that at full strength he has no ability to overcome. And what's more is he's not at full strength. His army is running away. His resources are dwindling. It's evaporating right in front of his eyes. And because it's so urgent, because it's so right there in front of him, it's all Saul can see, it's all he can think about, and he totally forgets that this is exactly the moment that he had been anointed for. This was exactly the thing God said Saul was put in a position to do. He was to save Israel from the Philistines, and he was to restrain them and keep their eyes fixed on God and not the circumstances around them. God had promised before that in moments like this, this is where Saul would come through and this is where God would come through on Saul's behalf. Yet the circumstances are so extreme that Saul loses sight of what is most important and instead focuses on what is urgent. What's most important is that Saul was pulled out, anointed, picked out to do this, along with Samuel, God's anointed prophet, in God's design and time. But because Saul is so obsessed with being just simply obedient by the letter of the law, He loses sight of what's important. That his obedience was supposed to keep him and the people connected to God. This is the pitfall of obedience in our life. When we see the point of our life simply as being obedient, obedient to the end, obedient to a fault, we never ask a question. We just simply go along and we say, whatever you want. Yes, that's what was said. That's what must be done. Not why was it said, but just simply, well, it was said. It has to be done. Obedience will always lead us to a place where the tyranny of the urgent will overwhelm us and trap us to where all we can see is what's right in front of us and we can never remember what has been promised to us. Obedience is always concerned with the obstacle that's right in front of us, not the goal of where we're trying to get to. It's always asking the question of what do I have to overcome? What do I have to get past? If I'm going to be obedient, what is the thing that's in my way from being obedient to God? And so the things that are right in front of us, the things that seem urgent, 
tend to crowd out the things that are important. Charles Hummel actually says to this point, he says, your greatest danger in your life is letting the urgent things crowd out the important things. Letting the armies that are right across the river from you crowd out the fact that God is on your side. That God is with you, that God wants to be with you. We know this is the truth of our life, that the urgent crowds out the important, don't we? I mean, we feel that every day. We get to the end of our day, and we're like, you know what? I meant to do that thing, and it got pushed off to the back burner. Why does that happen all the time to us? Why is it so easy for the urgency of the day to overtake the most important things that we know we have to do, that we need to do, that we should do? It's because the important things can always wait till tomorrow. If it's important, it will be there tomorrow. Your kids will be there tomorrow. Your wife, your husband, your spouse, they'll be there tomorrow. That friend that you feel like you should call, they will be there tomorrow. Time with God will be there tomorrow. But this needs taken care of now, today. Can't tell you how many times I've walked around racked with guilt because I've known that there were things that I needed to do in my life that were important that I was putting off because you know what it's just been so busy lately you ever feel like that time with God gets pushed aside because work's just really hectic and crazy right now the moment you wake up your feet hit the floor you're off you're running you don't even have a moment to yourself. What's crazy about that is, is two weeks from then, you look back, and you're like, I don't even know what I was doing that I was so busy. I can't remember. Why is that? It's because we're so concerned with taking care of what's urgent and not what's important. The urgent things, they come and go. They're always there. They're always vying. They're always looking to push out what's most important in our life. But the thing is, is that they're not lasting They're not what brings meaning. They're not the point of our life. It's also focused on being obedient, though. That the obstacle facing him right now is the urgent thing. It's the army across from him. And that leads to some short-sightedness on Saul's part. As we look there, continue on in verses 9 through 12, it says, So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me. And the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. See, Samuel, it was still the seventh day. Samuel just showed up later than Saul thought he should. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you had not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. When the urgent things in our life overtake us, when we are trapped by them, just like Saul, we become blinded by our insecurity. All Saul could see at this point was that he was about to be overrun and he didn't have what he needed 
to survive. There's an obvious task to be done, and it's getting difficult every minute. And Samuel hasn't shown up when he should have. And I think it's at this point that God might as well never have promised Saul anything ever in his life. He had been told something. Don't move, don't do anything until Samuel comes and gives an offering. He had been promised two things. When that was going to happen. Samuel was going to come in seven days. The second thing that he had been promised was that Samuel was going to come. And with Samuel comes God. God's presence. God's blessing. And I think it's pretty easy for us as we see here today to say which is the more important. That Samuel was going to come in seven days or that when he came, God was going to come with him, right? I feel like on a multiple... T- choice test, we'd all get that one right. The most important one, that God was going to come. And so it stands to reason, right, that if we were sitting here trying to tell Saul what he should do, how he should see things as, hey man, don't worry if it's seven days or 70, I would probably wait till God shows up, right? Don't move, don't do anything till that happens. But as easy as this is for us to see, it should be equally as easy as for, for us to realize that we do the same thing that Saul does here. That when we are blinded by our insecurity, what we lack, what we don't have to accomplish the tasks that God has given to us, the responsibilities that are running rampant in our life, when we feel as though everything is about to come tumbling down around us, Our insecurity will always establish false timelines in our life. We will always say, if it doesn't happen by this point, it's not going to happen. And so we create ultimatums. We create thin red lines. We create the time and place that God needs to act by. Because we can see the circumstances, we can see what's going on, and we have the full picture, don't we? Saul knew what was up. I've got 600 men, they've got 30,000. God, if you're not going to act by this point, it's hopeless. Henry Blackaby says, never determine the truth of a situation by looking at the circumstances. Why? Because you are always going to run into situations where the circumstances outweigh the resources that you think you have. And you are going to establish false timelines in your life that if God does not act by this point, all will be lost. And out of that insecurity and desperation, you're going to move well before God wants you to move. This has been a really hard text for me to study and think about all week long because I just look at it and I'm like, holy cow, this is my life. Because I know how easy it is to want so desperately to own your own house and see mortgage rates drop to historic lows and then see them slowly start to rise back up 
and start thinking, you know, God, if you're not, you know, going to do something pretty soon, we're going to miss out on a great opportunity that we may never have again. I know how easy it is to struggle with infertility and look at everybody else having children and think about biological clocks and all these other things and think, man, if we don't start having kids by a certain time, we may never have the amount of kids we want to have. We may never have kids at all. And so to think, God, if you don't start working by this time, we're going to miss out on a great opportunity we may never get back. When the urgent needs of our life become the biggest demand, we are blinded by the insecurity that we have, that we all struggle with, that we don't have what it takes to rise to the challenge, to meet the needs of the day. And our insecurity actually ends up becoming the loudest voice in our life. We hear how it's slipping away. We see how our resources are depleting day by day, moment by moment, and it doesn't feel like God is working when we think he should, and better yet, when he promised he would. Saul finds himself in this place, and he's looking around, and he says, okay, something has to happen. And so we read there in verses 12 through 14, That Saul tells Samuel, he says, so I forced myself, literally means I had no other choice. I was backed into a corner. What else do you want me to do? And offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The final step in this process in Saul's life is that Saul decides to make something happen. Something is better than nothing. Have you ever felt like that? Well, if God's not going to do something, I'll do at least something. In this moment, Saul usurps the authority both of Samuel and of God. And when he's confronted with that reality, he can't see his responsibility in the matter. He blames his troops. He says, everybody was scattering around me. I was the only one standing tall, standing firm. You ever feel like that? Someone confronts you with something you've done wrong and it's like, well, at least I was there. At least I was doing something. At least I was standing up for what was right. And what's more, finally, when he's really pressed on it, he just says, you know, I had no other choice. What do you want me me to do? Other people would have done the same thing that I did. Everyone, including God, have let Saul down in his mind at this point. How can he be responsible? How can he be the one that is judged for this? Why does he have to bear the condemnation from God. 
This is the echo of every sinful act since back to the garden. If you remember, when, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and God comes along and says, have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you? He, he's asking Adam, what does Adam say? It was her. Fails to see the responsibility that has people. Like, what choice do women have? Do you really want me to tell her no? Have you ever tried to tell your wife no, God? I don't think so. Like, it's just no, you have to do it. Fail to see the responsibility that he has to play. What we see here in Saul's life is that Saul has an idea of what it means to be obedient. He got that part of a relationship with God right, that obedience was important. But he saw obedience as the end, as the goal. If I can be obedient, I can receive God's blessing. And all we know that that is, is that's just a way for Saul to still stay independent. I can make something happen. I can force God's hand. I can stay obedient. I can at least be partially obedient. He's not relying necessarily on God's presence. He just simply wants God's blessing because Saul did the thing he was supposed to. Saul is after the blessing and not the blesser. This is why this passage for me is such a scary one. Because it's such a simple thing that can lead to devastating consequences. A simple idea of wanting to get it right, of wanting to be faithful, of wanting to be obedient, and seeing that as the most important thing. And so then because of that, it creeps in that the urgent things in our life become the biggest things. That we forget the promises of God. We forget who God is and what God is about and what he's after. And that leads to our insecurities becoming the loudest voices in our life, blinding us from the goodness and the grace of God that ultimately leads us to all-out rebellion of saying, you know what, I'll just do it myself. It's scary because this is, this is my week every week. I can look back and I can see where I allowed the urgent to trump the important. That it's the pattern of a life I got, I've come to so many times that I get to the end of a week, I get to the end of a month, and I say, what in the world have I done that's had any importance? Oh yeah, I told myself at the beginning of the week, I need to spend more t- time with my kids this week. Did I do that? No. Why? Because there's stuff to get done around the house. I hope my wife doesn't listen. She'll laugh at that. She'll be like, yeah, right. That's a thought in your mind. Stuff to get done around the house. Okay. This is the pattern of so many of our lives. And if it's not broken, we will end up like Saul. See, what God is doing here, what God is saying to Saul is not, Saul, you've been trying to do the wrong thing, but you, sorry, man, you screwed up. What God is finally coming along and saying is, Saul, this is who you are, and this is what you're after, and this is what you're about. If you remember all the way back to when Saul was anointed there in chapter 9 and 10, when, he finally, when they cast lots, where do they find Saul? Not standing out there saying, yeah, God told me this is what was going to happen. He hides in the baggage, Right? It doesn't matter what God says to Saul. Saul does not want to be dependent on God. 
He wants to be independent. He wants to be able to rely on his own strength. And so he keeps looking to his own strength. And so then we see, uh, even at the moment that he's anointed, Saul is insecure about what God is calling him to do. Why? Because Saul looks at himself and he says, Who am I of the tribe of Benjamin of an insignificant family? And this leaves Saul to a pattern time and time again in his life where the tyranny of the urgent overwhelms him and traps him. And so he's blinded by his own security. So he seeks to make things happen on his own and acts in all-out rebellion of what God has told him to do. He's not willing to wait and trust on God in his presence because Saul thinks his hands are still his best. This is the crazy thing about it all is that we, in our insecurity, will seek to be more independent. The more insecure we are, we would think that would push us towards God. But the more insecure we are, the more afraid of everything falling around us. And so we take action on our own because we think, you know what? When push comes to shove, I can only rely on myself and my own strength. And this is the pattern of my life, and I think it's the pattern of so many of our lives. And the pattern has to be broken. And the good news is... There's a model for how to break the pattern, and the model that we have is Jesus. Jesus gets to the end of his life in John 17, and he's talking to his disciples, and he says, the work I have come to do is finished. It's complete. It's over. There's a peace about him there in John chapter 17 that, quite frankly, to me, sometimes I read it, and I think, well, that's just naive. For Jesus to say after three years of public ministry that his work was done, I don't know, Jesus, but like the way I can say it, yeah, you healed a lot of people, but there's still a lot of people that need healing. You fixed a lot of things, but there's still a lot of things that need fixing. You know what? I see you speaking to the political climate of your day, but the, the political climate of my day is still pretty screwed up. I don't know how Jesus sometimes can have the peace to sit there and say, my work is done. But when you go to Mark chapter 1, you see a rhythm in Jesus' life that leads to a peace and an understanding of what he's about and what is most important. It says there in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is what I, why I came out. Jesus has been healing and teaching in Mark chapter 1. He goes away to pray, and there are crowds, huge throngs of people looking for Jesus, and they can't find him, and his disciples are embarrassed about it. And so they come and they find him and they say, hey, Jesus, you need to come back because these people need you. They want you. They're right here. It's time to go. And we see in Jesus' life, he is able to ignore the urgent and stay focused on the important. Stay focused on what God is wanting him to do. And in this short passage, we see three things that work for Jesus to help him do this. To help him break the pattern of the tyranny of the urgent in his life. The first thing we see him do is he's God. If you want to break the tyranny of the urgent in your life and the pattern that it brings about of destruction on you, just be God. Works really well. If you want to know what God wants and what is most important and stay focused on that, just be him. 
Jesus is able to do that. But I was thinking about this. I don't think this is for everybody, though. So this might not work for you. So there's a couple other things that Jesus does. You could try to be the Messiah. God's chosen one, meant to bring salvation, not only for Israel, but the whole world. But this kind of falls into the category of be God, where it's not for everybody. I think, for the most part, everybody here is ineligible for that role. Uh, seeming, I mean, it's already been done, so that you'd be a little bit redundant at this point. Uh, so no matter how much your spouse might think you walk on water, I don't think being the Messiah would work for you. So what Mark shows us that Jesus does is he prays. He is in communion, in conversation, in relationship with God the Father, and he's actually dependent on that. We see time and time again in his ministry that Jesus goes back to prayer. When he feels drained, what does he do? He prays. When he feels uplifted, what does he do? He prays. When he needs power and leading from God, what does he do? He prays. When he is healing someone, what does he do? He prays. This is the life and pattern of Jesus. And I think if for a guy that could have rested on the be God or be the Messiah options, he chose to pray we probably need to do the same thing. God has given us prayer so that we can know him intimately. And yet I tend to look at prayer as just another sacrifice to be offered up at the right time when I need something urgent taken care of in my life. I was talking about um, a big milestone being that our kids are no longer going to be in the baby stage. And why I haven't really liked the baby stage, and it feels one-dimensional. That's because what I want is I want my kids to know me. I want them to know me just the, beyond just being the, you know, obey me or else guy. I want them to know why I give those rules. Why I say don't do that. That it goes a whole lot deeper than this is just what I want, but it goes to where this is what I want for them. It's not that I don't want them to stop obeying me. I just want them to understand deeper, and I want us to go beyond just simply our relationship that's based on how well they obey me. I want my kids to know me. I want my kids to know my love for them. I want them to know how I see them for who they are. I want them to know what I hope for them. I want so desperately for my kids to be the best version of themselves. I want them to know what I think that looks like. I want so desperately for them to be free from the words and opinions of other people. I am our, our oldest daughter, Eden, she is a people person. We are at a park, and she doesn't play. She just says, I'm going to go meet new people. She walks up to people, and she says hi to them, and she introduces herself, and they look at her like she's crazy. And I'm so worried that my daughter's love for people is going to be crushed because of the way people respond to her, and they think it's weird how much she just wants to love people. And I want her to know it's okay, and it's great, and it's their problem, not hers. I want my kids to have a joy in life that I find difficult to find. 
But this all takes a relationship, conversation, and time that simple obedience doesn't. It's pretty easy to find out what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do it and just follow through on it and say, okay, bless me. It takes a lifetime of constant conversation, deep sharing and love and openness and transparency that I don't know if I'll be able to fully express to them what I think they are or could be. Saul, at some point in his life, had decided to be transactional in his relationship with God. I obey you, you bless me. And he thought that was his way to freedom. That if he simply checked the boxes, he could still basically do his own thing on his own timeline and he could be essentially free. But the rhythm of Jesus' life of constant prayer and conversation and relationship with God the Father and that being what God wants with us and to share with us, and to show us, and to tell us about. Shows us that the reality is, is that dependence sets you free. The contrary to popular views, such dependence does not limit or repress our personality. Because we are never so fully free as to become our true selves as when we're living in complete dependence on God. In verse 14, Samuel tells Saul what he's been looking for, what he wants, what his hope for Saul was, what his hope for all of us is, and that is that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That literally translates to that God has sought out a man who is like-minded. God doesn't simply want you and I to obey him and do what he has asked us to do. He wants us to think like he thinks to share his thoughts and his opinions and his love and his grace. God has given us a way to know him through prayer, to know him deeply and intimately. He wants us to move beyond the simple transactional approach of obeying God so he can bless us and to know that through our obedience we can experience him and we can know him and we can understand how he sees us and what he wants for us and we can be free of the world's opinions and thoughts and be known truly as we were created. Dan Rather once interviewed uh, Mother Teresa And uh, he asked her, he said, "Um, when you're praying, what do you say? And she said, I don't say anything. I just listen. And so rather said, okay, well, if you don't say anything, what does God say? And she said, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. She said, if you can't understand that, I can't explain it to you. What God wants more than anything else, what he has called you to, what he has anointed you for, is to know him and know him intimately and love him. In the same way that we all want to love our children, in the same way that we want to be loved by our parents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We call you Father because that is who you are and how you want to know us. Lord, I forgive forgive me, forgive us for the times that we have 
for the times we've made it about following rules, just simply obeying you and going through the motions. Lord, would you help us to break out of the pattern that is so easy to fall into in our life of just simply taking care of what's right in front of us and losing sight of what is most important, and that is you and knowing you and knowing your glory. Help us to be a people. Help us individually to have a joy in this life. Not out of what we've done or how faithful we've been or obedient we've the amount of obedience we've been able to accomplish, but simply because we can say each and every day, I know my God. I know the one who loves me. I know the one who has saved me. And I know the one intimately in who I, I have life in. Thank you for the grace and the freedom that you give us as we lean more into your love and dependence upon you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.